I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Here are your hosts, Chad Grills and Ian Faison. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a surprise episode of Mission Daily. In today's episode, we sit down with actor, writer, director, and entrepreneur, Jeffrey Wright. Maybe you've seen him in Westworld or the James Bond franchise with Daniel Craig. In today's episode, we talk uh, after show stuff. So if you're familiar with our podcast, The Story, you know that after each season, we do an after show. And the most recent season of The Story was narrated by Jeffrey Wright. So in this episode, Ian and I hang out with Jeffrey after recording the season in Brooklyn. And we talk about the season, art, and many other things. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The After Show. I'm Chad Grills. Ian Faison is here, and we're joined by a very special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Wright. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, man. Yeah, so we uh, we were so excited about you being involved in this season and uh, your unique perspective on these stories, specifically with Nearest Green. Um, why were you so excited about telling this story, and how is it kind of like involved in your life now? Well, uh, full disclosure, I'm an investor in the company now, and I'm passionate about it, not solely because of that, because I think What's fascinating about this bottle is that it really contains an incredible volume of history. And so the story first was brought to my attention one day when I'm reading the New York Times and uh, Brown Foreman and Jack Daniels company had begun to tell the, the real truth behind the origins of their whiskey during the tours at the distillery out in Lynchburg. The, the Times articles about that. Prior to a couple of years ago, the, the story, as was told, was that Jack Daniel learned his craft from Dan Call, this preacher, farmer, whiskey maker, went to work for him as a little boy, and, you know, the rest is uh, an obscured history. The company started to tell the real story of Nathan Nearest Green, who was a slave whose services were rented by Dan Call and Jack Daniel went to work with him, and that's how he learned his craft, because Nearest Green had mastered this Lincoln County process, which is what differentiates Tennessee whiskey from bourbon, and they made this incredibly smooth, uh, smoky whiskey, and they went off. And so when I read the story in the Times, one, I on occasion have a glass of whiskey, (laughs) so I was intrigued by the history, but I was also... um, I was also intrigued because I love history in America that speaks to the complexity of who we are. And so often the stories that we are told about ourselves as a society are one thing, but the realities of who we are are so much more nuanced and interesting and layered. And I thought that this story was the epitome of that. Yes, it's a story about whiskey, but that whiskey is so much more. It's a story, I think, that unites us in some ways at a time when we need stories that unite us. It's the story of a basically an underprivileged white kid and an underprivileged black man who come together and end up creating one of the great, iconic American brands, a brand that represents uh in some ways, the American spirit of freedom and a little bit of rebellion and all of those things, this icon of uh, of an American thing. 
And, you know, it was largely created by a slave, a black man. So we just need to know these stories because when we don't know these stories, the easy assumption is that, well, this group created everything and this group has claim over what is America. And I think we hear that messaging a lot right now. I'm, you know, I'm a whole American, but you who are the other, you're less than American. And the only way that we get to an understanding of ourselves that's skewed in that way is if we don't know what Paul Harvey would call the rest of the story. And when we know the rest of the story, then we have a much more, a much fuller appreciation, not only of what we are as a country, but who we are as individuals too. And so for me, you know, an investor now, as I said, in Uncle Nearest, uh, the whiskey, we're selling much more than, uh, than just a smooth taste. Uh, we're selling that, but we're selling a taste of history as well. Yeah. I mean, and Jack Daniels, both of his, or his side of the family was, guess what? Immigrants that yeah. came here from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody, the vast majority of us came from somewhere else. One of the things that in that story is so interesting too, is like this, this kind of buddy cop comedy yeah. that you could imagine unfolding with the guy who's five foot one. They said he has size four shoes. Yeah. That when they made his statue, <laughs> yeah. that literally they had to fake the shoe size because it kept, they wouldn't like withstand the weight, right? Yeah. So you imagine these two guys that were probably super different people that yeah. came together to make something enduring. And the George Washington Carver story and Henry Ford is much the same way. Like yeah. you see these two people that are so different yeah. um, that came together to make something better and make something for other people around them. And that's so uniquely American. And, and as well have such um, in incredible acreages of fertile land between them, of yeah, right. fertile common ground. You have a guy in George Washington Carver who's born a slave and you have Henry Ford, who I think still arguably is probably the most influential innovator and, and industrialist in the world who had so much in common. And it just breaks down the stereotypes around race, around power, around culture. And it just speaks to the commonality that exists between all of us. It's just, it's just beautiful stuff. And going back to the, to the nearest green story, one of the fascinating things too for Jack Daniels, for the company, for Brown Foreman, the parent company, is that they were ashamed to tell this story. They were really hesitant. Shall we let it be known that you know, we have this ties to slavery and to this slave? But that was the reality. Yeah. They were afraid that um, their, as I understand it, that their revenues would drop if they let this story be known. As it turns out, their revenues, <laughs> revenues increased because you the, brought the in, works, right? you, you bring in, you know, a whole level, different level of interest when that story is known in full. But, you know, they have nothing to do with, with this bottle, with uh, Uncle Nearest. That's an independent label. As it turns out now, it's the fastest growing uh, independent whiskey, whiskey bottle in the history of the business. So. There's some folks who want to hear that story and want to want to drink a toast to it as well. I mean, you look like 170 years later that innovation is happening. And I think, you know, Fawn's part in this story, who we've got a chance to talk to is so interesting as well, because I think there's this feeling that like, that the secrets are are all gone, right? Like you, there's not things to discover. And what we found in researching all these stories, and we find every time when we research these stories, is just how frequently secrets are lost yeah. or misinterpreted. And yeah. these stories are told in ways that are not 
necessarily reality. And that's that's fun for the for the sleuth in all of yeah. us to find those things. Well, I think shame has a lot to do with it. I think um, national shame, you know, the shame of individuals around, uh, you know, the original sin that is at the heart of our history and around, you know, the transgressions that that are, are woven into our society. But I, I don't think there's a reason for shame. I think, for one, from an African-American perspective, shame exists. But I think if you look back and you look at this, you take a, a, you know, a deep look at this history, one thing you realize is how much we overcame and how much we uh, survived and that we're still here. And from a national perspective, you look at it and you can say the same thing, too. We progressed out of that. And then also as well... I think when we look at stories of slavery, we make assumptions that really are filtered through white supremacy because you think uh, that, well, these people were enslaved because they were inferior. Well, I think um, slavery was the result of some pretty long lasting and uh, widespread brutality, an absence of moral value. Uh, an absence of the expression of the humanness and the humanity that is the, the, at the core of the American principles. And so I think I tend to look at the inferiority as being that of the slave master as opposed to, to that person who was enslaved. And further, I think we make a mistake if we kind of generalize about who slaves were and we don't give them individual humanity. George Washington Carver was a different man than uh, Nearest Green, who was a different uh, human than Harriet Tubman. And I I think we should remember, too, that simply because you were a slave didn't mean you couldn't be a genius. Yeah. Didn't mean you weren't an innovator. Didn't mean you weren't a deep thinker and a fighter and, uh, and someone with a creative, fertile mind. One of the things about the Harriet Tubman story that everyone knows about the Underground Railroad from kids, but that sounds like, like we know a railroad is something that is exists with a train and all that stuff, but she built that from scratch. Yeah. She created all of those connections, those human connections with people, convincing every single person over and over and over again to trust her. Like though that's what's so interesting about her story. That type of persuasion and selling is just like, I think, unprecedented where- yeah. That's, uh, that type of feat is, uh, I mean, people get uncomfortable when you knock on a stranger's door. Imagine doing that a hundred times to yeah. get where you're going. And think about the, 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 the levels of connectivity that she enjoyed in terms sure. of like the social network that cr- she created in the absence of Facebook. I mean, she was, you know, she was grinding it out literally from the dirt. And, you know, another thing is she didn't have to do it. Right. Totally. You know, she made a choice, you know. It's like, in some ways, you know, that mammal that went back into the ocean <laughs> yeah. to, to evolve into the dolphin, into the whale, you yeah. know? She made a choice, went back for her own, you know, spiritual and human evolution and for that of her fellow uh, citizens and uh, and for our country. The thing that's so brilliant about all these people, like George Washington Carver working, you know, meeting Henry Ford and sometime, you know, way later in his life, they continue to write their stories after the thing that they're known for. And I think that's part of the thing is like, she did all of that. And then she started working on women's suffrage. And then she continued like other pursuits. And that's all of these people have these rich stories. And I think that a lot of people, and a lot of times, like you said, we kind of anonymize the slave Mm. without 
like what happened next? Yeah. What were the next 40 years of their life? Yeah. Um, and things that happened later on in their life where they continued to work for other injustices or other things. And that's what's so the depth of character of those people is really what stands the test of time. Yeah. I mean, the physical rigor that was required. You know, you think of Madam C.J. Walker's story, and I didn't know that her family had moved to Denver and moved to Pittsburgh and moved to New York. And those weren't even easy moves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not a lot of open arms. <laughs> yeah. In place. Those yeah. aren't easy, you know, that logistically. Yeah. And it's a common story of migration in stories we see now of, of migration. We talk about Syrian refugees, where people pulling up stake, whole families, and, and going from Syria to Germany. Yes. I mean, even today, that's, I mean, I, I marvel at that, that people are willing or have to just grab the the handles of everything that they have, including family and, and start again in the middle of their lives. And so, yeah, the, you know, the resilience that someone like she and her family uh, display, I think, is, you know, we perhaps take for granted a little bit in, in modern America. I think another thing is the idea of names, like what is a name and how many of these people had to either forego their name for nearest green. We don't know where his names come, his name come from, you know, Fawn theorizes that the slave owners, um, who was the largest slave owner in the area, uh, was the company was named green. So yeah. that might be his name. Landis and like, green, I believe. Yeah. Landis and green. Yeah. Um, you talk about Madam CJ Walker taking a new name, um, this idea of names, which comes up in, in pretty much every one of the stories that, you know, you can leave your physical life behind, but what about your identity? What about where you came from and the roots that you came from? And I think it's just a fascinating um, instance that so many of these people changed their name, whether it was to escape or whether it was to flee for their own safety or whether it was to create a new life or in the Prince of Darkness case, People giving him that name saying, hey, if this is negative to you guys, this is a positive for me. Yeah. I, it's just such a, um, how many people do you know that just give up their name? They're willing that, to rebrand themselves. Yeah. Completely. Well, yeah. I think there was a necessity too on in, on some folks' part of inventing themselves in their own terms. Yeah. Uh, when uh, you know society had insisted on on stamping them with uh, its own label. It was the desire to, uh, you know, to build their own identity. I love the story too. It's a tragic story, but I I love elements of the story of uh, O.W. Gurley and Black Wall Street. L love it in a tragic sense. But what I was struck by in, in reading it, uh, and I hadn't thought about it in this way, was the parallels to the Mormon story. Mm -hmm. And these folks as well going out to reinvent themselves, to create a new reality for themselves. And they succeeded. They did that. And if you think about race in America in a contemporary setting, and we like to think that, you know, the dark, or we did at one point until very recently thought that the dark uh, racial history of our country was behind us. And, you know, slavery is, is no more. And, you know, we've had civil rights uh, movement and the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and all of this legislation that has been built to ensure freedoms and rights extend to those who historically didn't have any. We think we've, we, you know, we thought we'd solve these problems. But if you look at the O.W. Gurley story and you look at what was built and you look at the mission in going out west, that mission is very similar. It seemed to me, uh, it reads to me as the Mormon mission. It's tied up in a type of mythologizing. And, but at the same time, it's about seeking a new prosperity and a freedom to build that prosperity. 
And if you look at Salt Lake City today and what are the lasting outcomes of that migration versus the outcomes for those folks in Greenwood, Oklahoma, look at the lasting results there. They don't exist. And that story for me really highlights the ways in which history in a very specific way builds the present. And it also speaks to the ways in which violence and institutional and societal resistance to um, the equality and the prosperity of black communities has affected the conditions that a lot of black folks find themselves in today. There's income uh, disparity in the black community in a way that there isn't, or the absence of home ownership in the black community. All of these things didn't just happen because, you know, black folks just don't want that stuff. (laughs) You know, or aren't capable of of acquiring that type of stability. There were real historic institutional and social forces and individuals who took it upon themselves to inflict a brutality and inflict damage to that type of progress that might have been born in Greenwood, Oklahoma, in a way that was it was born in Utah for the Mormons. Uh, So I say I like that story because it reveals that, but I hate that story. I hate the tragedy of that story. I hate the reality of that for our country. But, you know, we carry on. I mean, it's definitely, I think, uh, the darkest story that we've told uh, on the podcast so far. And, you know, as we discussed before we, we recorded, like, this is the cautionary tale. Like, this is not that long ago. Yeah. It's 100 years ago at this point, right? A little less than 100 years ago. It's easy to think that people are very different now, but in the absence of modern technology and conveniences, like, you have to wonder how quickly would people regress and, you know, with fear and things like that. And it's not not pleasant to consider, but it is something we should consider because we can't begin to do a better job unless we face the fact that a couple generations ago that was happening. And and, and why? (laughs) Right. For no reason. What was the t- no no goal or purpose, yeah. right? What 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 was the, there's you know there's this perception that you know the empowerment of the other somehow diminishes my power, and I think it speaks to a real um, insecurity, a real personal and uh, and and social insecurity of, of of the group and the individual that thinks that way. And yes, we need to be aware of those stories because we see those insecurities flaring up and being exposed in in too many people today. Well said. Jeffrey, you've been really generous with your time. I'm hoping you can leave us with a final thought about, you've spoken a lot about how art, storytelling, and writing have a transformative power to heal. And when we talk about some of the tragedies of the past and fear-based things of the present, how do we use art to get past them? How do we use art to unify people instead of divide them? Well, I, I, I don't think there's any way to solve any problem if it's not communicated. If it kind of sits in the darkness, um, festering, uh, then it, it will never it will never come to the light of of, of problem solving and so the, the the light of solutions. So the way that we, you know, we we understand one another, we understand the issues at hand is to communicate them. And story for me is a type of freedom. And I think uh, you know it speaks to the the that that you know knowledge is 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 power and. I had the opportunity to work with a group of veterans who use story and poetry as a means of healing uh, the trauma of their experiences in the military, both trauma as a result of, of combat, but also sexual assault, which is unfortunately uh, a larger problem in the military than, than we would hope. 
And the experience was so validating for me of what I try to do because it was so powerful for them. This need simply to tell their reality in a public setting was a healing for them, not only for themselves, but also for those around them, for the audience and for their, their, their colleagues that they were doing this with. They were doing it in a setting at Walter Reed that was an arts therapy program. And as much as uh, the storytelling through their own writing was important, in the healing process, gathering together as a group was important too. And it was a way for them to build community, to build community through shared story, through validation of oneself through the story of others. And I think, I think it, it was just right on the mark in terms of what story, what story means for a society, what story means for a community, gathering around the fire and understanding, looking into one another's eyes and understanding our commonality, our differences, but understanding it through a web of words and language that we build together. If we don't talk to one another, we're not, you know, then that's the beginning of kind of societal death. It's called We Are Not Done Yet, and it's on HBO, correct? It is on, on, on demand now. Um, and, you know, as two military veterans, we thank you for, for doing that. And also, it shows the power of, you know, groups that have not had the opportunity to tell their own story in a lot of ways. Like military veterans, for most of uh, time in Hollywood or otherwise, your stories are not told. And, and it's important that you did that work and we're appreciative. Well, yeah. I, I thank you. It's important that you did your work. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just have a great deal of respect for, uh, for those who serve and uh, for the warrior. Um, and I do think there's an overlap between the artist and the soldier. Um, and that's something that the men and women that I worked with celebrated. They saw what they were doing as a mission. I think the battle that story fights, the battle that art fights is, um, is a war of the mind and a war of the spirit. Um, that can as well at least lead us toward a path to peace. We may not get there in its entirety, but I think that, you know, that's why we fight. You know, we don't fight to make war, we fight to make, uh, make the peace. And so I think um, the artist and the soldier uh, in some ways share that, that intent. Perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.